You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, g'day there. My name is Tim and it is great to be with you today. Look, what on earth are we going to do with men, hey? What on earth are we going to do with men? (laughs) I suspect that question has been asked at various points and in different ways all throughout history, uh, particularly when men misuse power. But it seems to me that the question has been asked in the last 10 years in particular with a greater intensity perhaps than ever before. So, for example, something like White Ribbon Day. It's been around for 30 years. It was started in 1991 by... Uh, a group of men actually in London in response to what was a horrific slaughter and massacre of 14 women uh, by an anti-feminist man in Canada. And so these men start White Ribbon Day actually as a way to raise awareness about the tragic prevalence of violence by men against women and to try and encourage healthy relationships between the sexes. And so again, uh, there's always been examples of men misusing power And thankfully, uh, several voices have uh, been trying to raise awareness and bring about reform in that area for at least several decades. But it does seem like something has shifted in the last 10 years, uh, both in terms of society's awareness of the issue, but also in terms of how we describe the issue and what we think the solution might be. Uh, Maybe you've noticed that. If you have, and if you've found yourself wondering, you know, Why has that happened? Uh, Most scholars would say it has something to do with the arrival of fourth-wave feminism. Now, um, without going into all the details, you may be aware that feminism has multiple waves, the fourth of which uh, most scholars would suggest starts in around the year 2012, with a particular focus on sexual harassment and rape culture. Uh, A a key part of fourth-wave feminism is also using social media to highlight and raise awareness about the issue itself. And so probably the best example of this is the Me Too movement. Uh, It existed before 2017, but it really gains momentum in 2017 uh, when uh, it was revealed that Harvey Weinstein had been assaulting women in the film industry for years. And so in response to that, a number of women, not just in the US, but all over the world from lots of different nations start getting on uh, various social media platforms, uh, expressing, kind of sharing their own stories of sexual harassment, all of which actually result in a number of uh, powerful men uh, being revealed as exploiting women. And so uh, that was that. Was that. But it, it's much broader than that. And so kind of a little closer to home and even like in the last year or two, uh, you know, people, young Australians like Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, they've helped raise awareness uh, about the prevalence of sexual harassment in lots of different areas of society, including even the Australian government, for crying out loud. And so again, I, I think there has been a growing awareness of, uh, over the last 10 years, of the problems that take place when men use, misuse power. We've even got a new term for it, right? probably heard it, toxic masculinity. Um, For some people, it kind of seems like they describe all men as toxic, but for the majority, it it does seem to be a way of trying to capture a certain distortion, a a certain thing that happens when men misuse power and women suffer as a result. The thing is, 
for a growing number of people in our society, actually both men and women, there is a sense that the issue runs deeper than that still. In other words, the problem is not just that some men behave badly, the problem is the entire system of society as we know it. And this is where the introduction or kind of resurfacing of the concept of patriarchy comes along. And so, for example, in 2018, a lady named Charlotte Higgins, who, from what I can tell, is no relation to Brittany Higgins, uh, she writes an article in The Guardian called The Age of Patriarchy, How an Unfashionable Idea Became a Rallying Cry for Feminism Today. In the article, she kind of just explains that uh, actually the term patriarchy was sort of falling out of fashion, but in recent years it's been reintroduced, even now has the definite article in front of it, it's now the patriarchy. Anyway, the article is all about that, but listen to her definition of it. She says, part of the idea of patriarchy is that this oppression of women is multi-layered. It operates through inequalities at the level of the law and the state, but also through the home and the workplace. It's upheld by powerful cultural norms and supported by tradition, education and religion. Patriarchy offers the idea of a structure of power relations rather than a series of specific sexist acts. Only patriarchy seems to capture the peculiar elusiveness of gendered power. The idea that it does not reside in any one site or institution, but seems spread throughout the world. Again, according to Higgins and people like her, patriarchy is not just about men behaving badly. Rather, patriarchy is about an entire system of power imbalance that advantages men and oppresses women. Now, if that's true, it has profound implications for how you think about the solution. Because just think it through. If the problem is the system, it's not enough just to reform toxic masculinity, as important as we might think that is. Uh, nor is it enough to work for equality between the sexes, say, like in reducing the pay gap, etc., etc. And again, as important as that might be. Why? Well, because as long as the system as we know it is in place, so goes the argument, then because of the problem with the system, men will always continue to experience male privilege and women will always continue to suffer. And so what do you need to do? Well, it's obvious. Hashtag smash the patriarchy. Grace City, you've got you to grasp this. Uh, if you were with us last week, um, I suggested that hashtags like this one are tips of ideological icebergs. In other words, um, at the top of the iceberg, you see the hashtag, but hidden beneath, the, not hidden necessarily, but beneath the water is a whole way of thinking that goes along with it. This is no different. See, to smash the patriarchy is not just about reforming men, it's not just about reducing inequalities between the sexes, it's about removing the system as we know it. So let me just show you how um, Charlotte Higgins finishes her article. She says, if anything can unravel the rule of the father, that's just another way of describing the patriarchy, I'll explain why that is later on, it is likely to be the gradual shift in the way gender and sexuality are being understood. New ways of bringing up children outside traditional family structures will chip away at it, and so will a rising generation of bold young feminists who have not internalised oppression like their elders and who are calling out sexism and misogyny where they see it. 
the eradication of patriarchy looks like a task of enormous complexity. When it is smashed, there's our word, it will take a lot down with it. And so the patriarchs, from the bully in the White House to the bully in your workplace, are still in charge for now. Hashtag smash the patriarchy is about the fight for an entirely different society. And while I disagree with a lot of the article that she writes, I actually appreciate her honesty. When or if the patriarchy can be smashed, it'll bring a whole lot down with it. So the question I want to explore today, interrogate, is that little idea. In particular, what would happen if we smashed the patriarchy? I've got two points. One, what would happen if we smashed it with a hammer? Point number two, what would happen if we smashed it with the gospel? The hammer, the gospel. Let's see. Number one, what happens if you smash the patriarchy with a hammer? As I begin, let me just flag something up front, particularly if you're here and you are a believer, you're a Christian. Um, you might be aware that in many churches around the world, there's kind of an ongoing discussion around uh, roles of men and women and what's appropriate in the home, what's appropriate at the church. Uh, they're important discussions. Uh, they usually revolve around terms like egalitarian and complementarian. If you don't know what those mean, that's fine. I'll come back to at least one of them later on. But you need to understand that smashing the patriarchy is about so much more than that discussion. Smashing the patriarchy is an attack on the family unit and fathers in particular, both human and divine. Why do I say that? Well, the word patriarchy comes from uh, two Greek words. It's pater and archos, father rule. And so to smash the patriarchy is an attack both on, first of all, on human fathers, the father rule, but it's also an attack on God. Why? Well, uh, whatever your beliefs about gender roles, if you are a Christian, we all believe in the rule of one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, as we confess in the creeds. And so again, a, an attack on the patriarchy is not just about men and women and how they relate. It's, a, it's an attack on fathers, both human and the divine father. And what's more, uh, those who want to argue for it will sometimes uh, have a theoretical justification for it. So, For example, in 1947, uh, there's a man named Theodore Adorno. He's from the Frankfurt School. You might recall we mentioned that last week, if you do. Anyway, he developed something called the F scale, which claimed to test your authoritarian tendencies. And so F stood for fascism. And according to the test, those who came from traditional families and had religious convictions tended to be more likely to exhibit authoritarian tendencies. In other words, according to Adorno, people from traditional and religious backgrounds are more likely when in positions of authority to oppress others or when under authority to sort of just blindly accept it and submit to it. And so naturally, the solution becomes get rid of fathers, both human and divine, or kind of put it more simply, attack the faith and attack the family. But again, the question I want to explore is what happens when you do? Or maybe just to, to put a slight change on that, what are those who are pro proposing we smash the patriarchy suggesting we replace it with? It's an important question, by the way. You'll notice it's almost never entertained. 
we want to smash the patriarchy. Okay, what are you going to replace it with? Well, uh, I think there's at least two options. There might be more. Uh, I want to explore both of them. The first is matriarchy. Uh, so if patriarchy is the rule of the father, matriarchy is the rule of the mother. Mater plus arcos, mother rule. And so the basic logic of this view is effectively that the world would be a whole lot better off if women ran it. And so you see an example of this, even just a small uh, version of it, in something said uh, by the International Monetary Fund, the head of it, uh, a lady named Christine Lagarde, in 2018. Uh, she's reflecting back on the financial crisis of 2008, right? So a decade on, she's kind of thinking, you know, what have we learned? And here's what she says. She says, as I've said many times, if it had been Lehman sisters rather than Lehman brothers, we might be in a whole different world right now. Now, her point isn't just that we need women in finance. Uh, almost nobody disagrees with that. Her point seemed to be, if women were in charge, the world would be a whole lot better. Now, that might be true, might not be. But there's at least two, let's call them challenges, that you might need to overcome or at least reflect upon if you want to replace the patriarchy with matriarchy. The first is that throughout history, there has almost certainly never been a truly matriarchal society. Now, if that sounds odd to you, just hear me out. I'm not denying the existence of countries where there's a queen, you know, a female ruler. We're about places where ancestry is traced through the mother. Or even, frankly, about individual families or clans where women play a leading role. I'm talking about a genuine matriarchy, a society where women rule. And so, for example, I know that this is not a watertight source, okay, and I didn't used to quote this in high school, but let me just quote to you from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> This is the article on matriarchy. Now, it's probably the weakest part of the article because it admits that there's possible exceptions. So I'm quoting, I know it's not a great source, so I'll quote you the worst part, but listen to what they say. Most anthropologists hold that there are no known societies that are unambiguously matriarchal. There are some disagreements and possible exceptions. A belief that women's rule preceded men's rule was, according to Haviland, held by many 19th century intellectuals. The hypothesis survived until the 20th century and was notably advanced in the context of feminism and especially second wave feminism, but the hypothesis is mostly discredited today, most experts saying that it was never true. Now, you can chase that down yourself if you want to challenge it, but just hear me out. Even if it were true that there's never been such a thing as a truly matriarchal society, I recognise that doesn't guarantee that there won't be one in the future. But it does at least, either the non-existence or the unlikelihood of it in the past, does at least propose you or suggest you think twice before proposing that that's what we replace patriarchy with. Uh, the second challenge is that there's no guarantee that a matriarchy will be any better than a patriarchy anyway. Uh, during the week, I started reading a book called um, The Power by Naomi Alderman. Uh, I'm only halfway through it, but it is a fascinating exploration of what the world might look like if women had more power than men. 
uh, in the story, uh, kind of the world begins normally. It's like a normal world. And then at some point in the story, for various reasons, all the girls going through puberty start to develop the power to create an electric shock. And initially, they start using it against violent men. But as the story progresses, it's fascinating the way that many of the women start to abuse that power such that they end up doing just as much, if not more, damage than the men used to be doing. Again, I haven't finished the story, so I don't know where it's going. But I can't help feeling like, as I read through the story, the issue is not patriarchy, it's people. In other words, it doesn't matter who's in charge, who's ruling, so to speak, there is something within all of us, within our humanity, that tends to use and abuse power. And so again, I'm just not convinced that even if a genuine matriarchy was possible, that it's not going to be, that it's going to be any better as an option. But suppose someone says, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm not proposing that we replace it with patriarchy, I'm proposing we replace it with equality. And frankly, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic. But that is when you start to enter conversations around what kind of equality are you advocating for? Are we talking about equality of opportunity or are we talking about equality of outcome? So at the risk of oversimplifying. Um, first wave feminism is a big champion of equality of opportunity. And so it, it advocates for things like a woman's right to vote, to get educated, to own property, to have custody of children, enter all areas of employment, things like that. And so actually there's a lot that we can thank God for out of first wave feminism. Right to, sorry, the equal opportunity. Second wave feminism comes along though and it starts to kind of push for equality of outcome. In other words, they didn't just want women to have the ability to choose to enter the workforce if they wanted to, they start suggesting that there needs to be a 50-50 split between men and women in every single industry of work. Now, that might sound like a good idea in theory, and in some ways it kind of does. But it's a really bad idea in practice. Why? Because at the end of the day, the only way to achieve it is to force both men and women to do things that they would rather not do, at least some of them. And so, for example, uh, studies have shown that 20% of women really want to work full-time. 20% uh, would prefer to not work at all. About 60% of women, at least according to this study, would prefer to work part-time. That's different when you poll the men. The stats say most men, I don't know the specific percentage, but most men would prefer to work full-time. Or consider the example of the Scandinavian countries. It's fairly well known. The Scandinavian countries have legislated for more equality of opportunity than any other country in the world, countries, and yet they are the places where you get the most inequality of outcome. In other words, they are the places where you have 20 times more men doing engineering and 20 times more women doing nursing. Now, I'm not suggesting that a woman can't be an engineer or a man can't be a nurse. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that when given the freedom to choose, men and women tend to choose differently. Or to put it differently, equality of opportunity leads to inequality of outcome. Or if I can put it even more controversially, equality of opportunity leads to what some might describe as a patriarchy. 
because inevitably more men will be in the workforce and therefore more men will be leading. Now you could always argue, ah, that's just because uh, we've all internalized oppression and the patriarchal structures reinforce and recycle that to begin with. The thing is, that's just not what the, the science suggests. And so, for example, uh, Stephen Rhodes in his book, uh, Taking Sex Differences Seriously, he says, the biggest sex differences in expression of genes in the human brain occurs not in adulthood, nor in puberty, but in the prenatal period before the baby is born. In other words, sex isn't just a social construct, it's hardwired into us from birth, and it goes on to shape us in profoundly different ways. And therefore, again, while I'm all for uh, reducing the pay gap and improving opportunities for women, I am, mandating equal outcomes is a horrible idea. Because the only way to get it across a society, at least, is to remove freedom of choice, ignore merit, and just discriminate on the basis of sex. None of which sounds like a particularly better situation than the one we've got at the moment. Now, before, before I propose an alternative, um, let's just pause and consider what the fruit of smashing the patriarchy is so far. Because right? if smashing the patriarchy is designed to liberate women, it's worth just checking, how's it going so far? Are the women better off where it's happened? Well, let's face it, that's probably a matter of debate. Um, but let me give you one person's opinion. Uh, this is from an article called Death to the Patriarchy by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He writes this. We are told that dismantling patriarchy is one of the chief concerns of our time. Except that where patriarchy is already absent, dysfunction and desperation have multiplied. That's because patriarchy, rightly conceived, is not about the subjugation of women as much as it is about the subjugation of the male aggression and male irresponsibility that runs wild when women are forced to be in charge because the men are nowhere to be found. Now, I think that is a profound last statement, but I'm going to keep moving. It says, what school or church or, or city centre or rural hamlet is better off when fathers no longer rule? where communities of women and children can no longer depend upon men to protect and provide, the result is not freedom and independence. Fifty years of social science research confirms what common sense and natural law never forgot. As go the men, so goes the health of families and neighbourhoods. The choice is not between patriarchy and enlightened democracy, but between patriarchy and anarchy. Now, that's a provocative quote, and I don't suspect all of us to be comfortable with the way he's framed the issue. But it is difficult to deny some of the conclusions, isn't it? If you smash the patriarchy with a hammer, it's not going to result in a better society. Not for men, not for women, and definitely not for children. So is there an alternative? Or are we just left, doomed to live in a society where strong men rule and women and children suffer? Without the gospel, I suspect the answer is probably yes. If, however, we take that concept of father rule and smash it with the gospel, 
I want to suggest that everyone is better off as a result. That's what I'm going to try and convince you of under the second heading. So first heading, what happens when we smash it with the hammer? We'll see. What happens when you smash it with the gospel, though? That's what I want to talk about now. As we begin, let me just acknowledge an awkward reality. Um, patriarchy is a bit like a swastika. What do I mean? Well, prior to its use by the Nazis, uh, the swastika was a symbol used by a number of different societies around the world to uh, kind of symbolize different things. But at the start of the 20th century, right before the Nazis used it as their symbol, it was mo understood by most Europeans to be a symbol of good luck. And so, while it is technically possible to try and resurrect the swastika as a symbol of good luck, given all the negative associations and just everything that's gone on with it, probably a far wiser and smarter approach would just be get rid of the term or get rid of the symbol, start a new one in its place to symbolize good luck, and so thumbs up it is. Okay, I think there's a sense in which a similar thing could be said of patriarchy. You see, even though the word conjures up all sorts of negative associations for us, and understandably so, it's never used like that or seen that way in the Bible. And so, for example, men like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they're called the patriarchs. A uh, number of times, you can look up Romans 9 verse 5 later on. But again, it's never done negatively. And so, nevertheless, while it, while it is technically possible, for us to try and resurrect the term and maybe argue for some kind of qualified patriarchy where fathers are called to be gospel-hearted leaders, frankly, it's far safer, far wiser just, just to come up with a different term. Uh, which, incidentally, is actually what has happened in the last 30 years. You see, in the same year that those men in London came up with White Ribbon, White Ribbon Day, 1991, um, Two pastor theologians from the US named Wayne Grudem and uh, John Piper released a seminal book called Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And one of the things they did in that book was coin the term complementarianism as a way of describing the Bible's teaching on men and women. And so they kind of, they consider a few options. They're like traditional, oh, that doesn't quite capture it. Hierarchical, no, that's bad. And so this is where they land says, if one word must be used to describe our position, we prefer the term complementarian, since it suggests both equality and beneficial differences between men and women. Again, all, all they're trying to do with that term is summarize what the Bible teaches, which I think is patriarchy smashed with the gospel. Having said that, uh, while I... I'm happy to call myself a complementarian and have done so regularly in this church as a complementarian church. If you're here last week, I used that exact word. I've never called myself a patriarchalist and I wouldn't do so uh, just because of all the negative baggage that goes along with it. And just as an aside, I'd appreciate if you don't call me a patriarchalist either. Uh, even if you disagree with everything I say today, that's fine. But at least please do me, do, do me the honor of um, trying to capture the nuance of what I'm arguing for this morning. But what does the Bible teach? Well, really, it's all about those two words, equality and differences. Equality and differences. 
you see it all through the Bible, but you actually see it on the very first page of the Bible. So let's take a look at uh, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Notice equality. In the image of God, he created them. Both created in the image of God. Notice the difference, male and female, he created them. Now, let's not skip over that too quickly. Men and women are equal in so, so many ways. We're equal in value. We're equal in dignity. If you trust in Jesus, we are equal. We are co-heirs of eternal life. Men and women are equal. And we're also different. How so? Well, at least to begin with, God gives us different bodies. Uh, Look with me at Genesis 2.28. It says, The Lord God said... It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, everyone trips up over the word helper. Um, That word, just so you know, uh, it doesn't imply inferiority. God is described as a helper more than anyone else in the entire Bible. So God is a helper. To be a helper does not imply or infer any form of inferiority. The point is that the man needs help. And all the women are like, preach. Um, (laughs) The point is that the man needs help. What does he need help doing? Well, the the job that God has given humanity, what was it? Fill the earth and subdue it. To state the obvious, the man can't do that alone. And so God says, I'm going to make him a helper suitable. That word suitable is literally one who is opposite or one who corresponds to him. Grace City, we need, we need to understand this. The world didn't need another man. It didn't need a different kind of man. It needed a woman. It needed someone who was equal to Adam, but different to him. Someone who was the yin to his yang. Someone who was his corresponding opposite. One with whom they could conceive a child and bring children into the world so that they could fill the earth and subdue it. So God makes the woman. Again, men and women are equal, but we're different. Only a woman bleeds once a month. Only a woman can grow a child in the womb. Only a woman can nurse that child from her flesh. Men and women are equal, but we are oh so different. The thing is, those differences do go beyond simply our bodies, though I expect they're informed by them. And I say that because throughout the Bible, there is both implicit and explicit teaching that when a man and a woman are married, and when a man and a woman have children together, the husband and father is called to be the loving leader of that family. And so perhaps the most obvious place, although perhaps also the most infamous place, would be a verse like Ephesians 5. Let's read it together, 22 to 23. It says, Wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, if this is the first time you are reading that, and certainly if you've uh, never heard good teaching on that, you might look at that and think, that is just bad old-fashioned patriarchy. In fact, somebody get me my hammer, I want to smash this thing. And I get it. But I want you to see what Paul does to it, because he's going to smash it. 
But he doesn't smash it with a hammer, he smashes it with the gospel. Let me show you what he says to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I find it hard not to tremble every time I read those verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he do it? He gave himself up for her. That is the command that Paul gives to husbands. Love your bride the way that Christ loved his bride, the church. See, Grace City, the bride of Christ has nothing to fear. Why? Because our husband, the bride of Christ is the church, our husband used his power to serve, to save, to sprinkle us with his blood. If husbands lived like that, women would have nothing to fear from men. If husbands and fathers live like that, women and children will be a lot better off in this world. We don't need to smash the patriarchy, at least not with a hammer. We need to smash it with the gospel. Now, before I finish up, I suspect a lot of us will still be quite uncomfortable. Uh, and in some ways, I'm not surprised. The truth is, many of us have been conditioned by 60 years of feminist literature to assume that any difference in role between a man and a woman is just, it's inherently domineering, offensive, and repressive. And so when you hear someone like me, you know, get up and I'm a man and a religious leader and tall and white, and you hear him advocating for what sounds like a carefully qualified version of this good old-fashioned patriarchy, you find it very hard to accept. Again, I get it, uh, particularly uh, if you've had a bad husband or a bad father, I get it. But let me have this one last attempt at showing you what happens when you smash any kind of ruler with the gospel. Let me show you uh, what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 10. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you smash a ruler with the gospel, they become a loving servant and a slave, just like their Lord Jesus. Uh, that's true for the ruler of a country, the ruler of a church, and the ruler of a household. And so if you can't pronounce the word complementarianism, uh, or you're allergic to the word patriarchy, and probably for good reason, uh, why not settle for something like patri agape, father love, or patri diacono, father service, or patri doulos, father slave? Because at the end of the day, that is what you will get if you smash patriarchy with the gospel, and women and children will be much better off.
Now, I know at this point, uh, you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, Tim, make it practical. <laughs> all right, Tim, this is all, what does it look like? That is an important question to answer, but it's not a question I'm going to answer in this talk. Again, it's important to answer. Uh, I've done it actually multiple times over the history of church, uh, probably most explicitly in a series we did back in 2019 called Who Am I? If you want to have a listen to that, go back to it. It's got talk on manhood, talk on womanhood. Uh, try to flesh some of these things out. This series is similar to that series, but it's, it's more focused on ideas. Now, you might say, oh, ideas, that's not practical. Uh, it's arguably more important. I say that because... Ideas is where the culture is fighting the war at the moment. That's the battlefront, the battle for ideas. And so if you want the practical stuff, go listen to those talks. Today, my goal in some ways has just been to convince you of an idea. And that is you don't help women and children by disempowering men. You help them by getting men to step up and use their power to love and serve those in their care. And so as I close... Uh, let me put a word out to husbands and fathers, either present or to be. Your families need you. Uh, your masculinity is not toxic, but your humanity is. And so it needs to be smashed with the gospel. Uh, in her book, Awake, Not Woke, Noel Mehring writes this, because he looms so large in the reality and imagination of his children, a father can inspire awe and fear. This is a powerful position and a heavy burden, one which is ripe for abuse, but also carries the potential for great heroism. This is why cultivating gentlemen is a societal imperative. The truly powerful man is the holy man, and holiness is gentle and strong. She's right. Men, you have an incredibly powerful role in your family. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to abuse it? Or are you going to be the hero that your family needs you to be? I love that last line. The truly powerful man is the holy man. And holiness is gentle and strong. That's what your family, either present or future, needs from you. It's also what our society needs from you. So I'm going to finish by reading one last quote to you. It's from a lady named Diane Langbert. Uh, she's a, a psychologist, practiced for decades. She's also the author of a book named Redeeming Power. I found this story profoundly helpful this week. She says, a female client with a history of chronic and violent sexual abuse shared this story. She was afraid of men and of church, since that's where much of her abuse had occurred. After several years of counselling sessions with me, she wanted to go to church again. She attended every Sunday, sitting in the back, arriving late and leaving early. After a few months, she told me about a family that sat in front of her every Sunday. A father, mother and two little girls. She watched them like a hawk, most particularly the father. She said, I've never seen a man treat a woman or little girls like this man does. He's never rough or sharp. Every Sunday, week after week, he is kind. He treats his wife with dignity. He bends down to the little girls. And even if they are wiggly or naughty, his voice is low and kind. For the first time in my life, I have a little picture of how you say God is with me. 
He is like that father. Dads, your families and this world need you. And if you've messed it up, you know you've messed it up. Your family knows you've messed it up. It's not too late to start because God is a gracious and a loving father. He wants you to come back to him and then in his strength, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, be the father that your family and this world needs. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the perfect father. Many of us have had imperfect fathers, all of us actually. We've had fathers who've let us down. But we thank you that you are the true father. You are the good father. You are the loving father. You are the gracious father who used your power to serve and to save. And so we pray for the men in particular here. Uh, husbands and fathers, maybe men who will never be a husband or a father, would you help us to use the power that you have given us to serve? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.